Hello, and welcome to the Osterholm Update, COVID-19, a weekly podcast on the COVID-19 pandemic with Dr. Michael Osterholm. Dr. Osterholm is an internationally recognized medical detective and director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, or CIDRAP, at the University of Minnesota. In this podcast, Dr. Osterholm will draw on more than 45 years of experience investigating infectious disease outbreaks to provide straight talk on the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Chris Dahl, reporter for CIDRAP News, and I'm your host for these conversations. As we near the end of July, with the number of new COVID-19 cases in the U.S. rising by more than 60,000 a day, there's a growing realization that the coronavirus pandemic is with us for the foreseeable future and will shape how we live, work, and educate our children over the coming months. Parts of the country have made some adjustments in recent weeks, from mask mandates to new restrictions on businesses. But will these changes be enough to affect the current trajectory? And what will the next few months look like? That's what we'll be discussing on this July 30th episode of the Osterholm Update. We'll also be diving into some of the latest news on vaccines, the nation's continued problems with testing, and whether all that sanitizing of surfaces makes a difference. But we start, as always, with Dr. Osterholm's dedication. Who are you dedicating this episode to, Mike? Thanks, Chris. Um, it's good to be with you again. Thank you. Uh, and I want to thank all of our listeners uh, who are with us today. Uh, we know you have many choices uh, from which to choose with regard to getting your information about the COVID-19 pandemic, and uh, it means a lot to have you with us. Uh, two weeks ago, I started discussions around the issue of school openings, and I dedicated the podcast at that time to the uh, children uh, who are obviously at the very heart of that issue. Last week, I dedicated it to the teachers, all the staff, and all the support uh, individuals within our schools that make it possible for our kids to go to school. And so today, I think it's only appropriate to kind of round out the, the important trio and dedicate this to all the parents, grandparents, and caregivers uh, who are obviously uh, concerned in every possible way about what it means for their children to go to school this fall. And so uh, parents and grandparents, please know this one's for you. In that regard, in somewhat of a selfish way, it's even for me because I have five grandchildren who are just in that position, and uh, I think about them every day, every day. So I'm I'm with you. Thank you, thank you, parents, grandparents, and other caregivers. Mike, although the nationwide surge in cases continues, we're seeing some glimmers of good news in the hard-hit states of California, Arizona, and Texas, where new cases seem to be leveling off. Do you think we've hit a peak in those states? Well, we, we have to understand is that we're on a journey, a journey that we all took together uh, beginning January when the virus first moved from Asia to its many locations around the world and really recognized here for its impact in March. And what I think has been uh, hard for most people to understand and, and understandably why is that this journey means we're going to have lots of zigs and zags, ups and downs, ins and outs, and that our our hope is is that we can anticipate them, reduce the impact they have on our society, but know that they're going to happen and be prepared to respond accordingly. Um, this is one of those good news, bad news weeks where, yes, absolutely, Arizona, Florida, and Texas surely are seeing a decrease in cases. 
uh, I could only have imagined that it would have lasted this long in the sense that things are so on fire in so many of these communities that it's hard not to have some kind of containment or mitigation activity going on where people are not leaving their homes, uh, where, where they are wearing masks um, and reducing their risk from that standpoint. But at the same time, we're having happen now in, in almost a similar manner as to what we saw happen in April and May with New York State, uh, Chicago, Detroit, and the rest of the country, where in those cities, um, we saw cases rise quickly uh, in April, uh, resulting in what we thought was the big peak. And then to see cases drop off uh, after they started to bring these hot, hot areas under control, and then the rest of the country picked up, not, not major, major activity, but they started to pick up. And so I think that what we're seeing now is the very same thing. Uh, the White House, which has this group of states called the red zone states, these are states where there's been 100 new cases per 100,000 in the previous week documented. And um, they've listed uh, um, these 20 different uh, states, and including uh, Alabama, Arkansas, Mississippi, Missouri, Nevada, North Carolina, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Tennessee, Utah, and Wisconsin, in addition to Arizona, Florida, and California. And uh, what we're now seeing is an emergence, basically, in these states of, of an increasing number of cases that I think will at least equalize, if not offset, the number of cases being uh, re the reduction of cases in uh, the other three states we just talked about. And so for a while, I think you're going to have a plateau. You can even look at states like Minnesota, our home state here. Um, we didn't make the red zone, but it's very concerning to me. When you look at Minnesota, uh, on May 25th, when we really hit the height of our activity, we reported 707 cases that day. And it was shortly after that the case numbers began to come down. By June 19th, just uh, a little over three weeks later, that number had been reduced to 320 from 707. And everybody began to feel, oh, look what we've done. Our ICUs are beginning to clear out. Uh, we've actually really accomplished something. But ironically, yesterday, the number of cases reported was 707, the exact same number it was on May 25th. And we're coming back. I, I worry very much about what is happening here. And if you look at our numbers, um, I surely am not going to suggest to you that it's going to be the same as California, Texas, or Florida, uh, given their population sizes and the rapid increase. But don't be surprised if a number of these states in the next uh, 10 to 20 days end up having some pretty substantial increases, which, again, I think will at least cause a plateau, if not some increase in cases, uh, even with Florida, Texas, and Arizona being reduced. So this, this is a huge challenge in terms of where we're at. And I, I just don't think people yet understand um, what these numbers mean. Let me give you a further perspective on this. Uh, if you look at where we were on June 1st of this year nationwide, at that time, we had reported 21,510 cases on a seven-day moving average. So 21,510 cases. On July 16th, we were at 65,420. Think of that, going from 21,000 
in about five and a half weeks to 65,420 cases reported. Now, that number is down uh, in terms of the overall seven-day average to 59,179 cases. So it surely shows it's coming down. The challenge we have now is that this almost hit the kind of a new plateau. I would not be surprised if we see, uh, you know, somewhere between 60 and 65,000 cases for some time to come. And then I think what's going to happen, and this is very troubling to, to talk about, but I think we're going to have a really difficult fall. Uh, I think that that uh, what we're going to see is a combination of events where uh, we're going to open higher ed. Uh, we're going to open schools up again. And many of these communities that have not come close to driving the numbers down uh, low enough for testing and tracing can have any really meaningful impact. And uh, I think we're going to see a big bolus of cases in September, October. That will be a real challenge. Um, you know, I'm at an institution of higher learning. I know no one wants to hear me say this, but I think that we're going to have a real problem. And I think we have to start anticipating that now in a way we hadn't. One of the things that just gives you a sense of what's happening is, you know, we all knew what happened after Memorial Day and that we relaxed our any kind of guard, you might say, with the virus. But if you look at just what's happened in the last week and a half to two weeks, we're beginning to see a number of high school athletic teams now starting to have outbreaks with them. Uh, the Lake Zurich High School in Illinois, uh, there were 36 cases among that group of students who were part of athletic camps. Uh, ironically, most of the cases were tied to social events that took place before the camp happened. And um, it, it, it's one of those situations where even the governor said, I'm so deeply troubled by outbreaks that we're seeing all around the state tied to activities like youth sports, like in Lake Zurich, where dozens of students and parents tested positive. Look in Kentucky. There, on July 20th, 38 people tested positive for COVID-19 following Kentucky high school football team outbreak. There, the uh, cases occurred among football players, coaches, family members, and close contacts. And uh, the suggestion that the high school weight room was a big part of the transmission picture. On July 24th in Michigan, all fall sports were canceled through August 10th at Richmond High School after student athletes tested positive for COVID-19. Uh, these were athletes in three different sports, volleyball, cross country, and football, all tested positive. All the cases were believed to be related to an off-campus event. And finally, on July 22nd in Wisconsin, Franklin High School athletics were postponed after a teen COVID outbreak in that city. All the athletic events were postponed through uh, July in the city of Franklin, where there was a large increase, as they described it, which includes youth between the ages of 16 and 19. And um, I think these are only going to continue to accentuate uh, this challenge we have in many of our communities. I think these high schools are going to really see substantial transmission. We get to college already. We're now talking about uh, Kansas State football team returned to the campus and most players initially tested negative. Uh, soon after they arrived though, they detected two cases among a group of players that were final arrivals, which eventually resulted in 14 total cases in just a few weeks time. And uh, you know, outbreaks here like this come on the back of cases in other division one schools, including Clemson, at least 28 cases in athletes, 23 who, who were football players, Texas, at least 13 cases in players, Louisiana State, at least 30 players were quarantined after exposures there. And, you know, 
last but not least, I think we're all aware right now this week of what's happened with uh, Miami Marlins uh, and the outbreak there in the Major League Baseball team, where four players today additionally are positive versus for 17 total reported cases among the team. And I think that, um, you know, it's, it's going to be a challenge. And I just don't think people understand yet, if you're together with this virus in the kind of social settings we're seeing here, and you're feeling, well, once fall starts, it's different than summer, I don't have to worry. I think we are going to have a major, major challenge. So to make a long story short, in the U.S., I think we're going to see cases leveling off a bit. Uh, I think we will see uh, the subsequent increase in cases begin probably in about three to four weeks, and I think it could be a sizable increase. Whether it will get to the 100,000 cases a day, I don't know but I'll be surprised if we don't see that big increase coming. Now, just to add further perspective to this, um, when you look at the international picture, uh, you know, we all know the global numbers mean very little because so few people are getting tested around the world that are infected. But, uh, you know, we're now at over 16 million cases reported with more than 654,000 deaths. Um, if you look at what's happening in terms of countries, Brazil, which is right up there with the United States. Uh, yesterday reported 23,284 new cases, 614 deaths. India, which is now becoming uh, one of the hottest spots in the world, uh, yesterday reported 44,000 cases, 457, um, with 637 deaths. This is a country that is of absolute critical uh, concern for us because so many of the supply chains that we depend on for medical supplies for some very key and critical uh, uh, computer equipment, et cetera, coming from India. And uh, we're already learning about challenges with some of the critical drugs that we need not being able to make it out of India right now because they are in some locations in virtual freefall. Um, Peru, Mexico, South Africa, I could go down the list here of all these countries that are really having challenges. But of all the ones I just listed, you could say, well, but they're the ones that aren't really handling it very well. You know, they're kind of like the United States, which is a hard thing to say that we're not handling it well. But I think that it's really important to understand, as I have been sharing with you from the beginning, and I feel like sometimes this virus is inside my head because I just, I, I sense it. And, and I surely, I know that's going to sound crazy to you, but, you know, I have been saying for some time, not because I want it to happen, but I just knew it was going to happen. I, if I had, had said once to me, I've had it said 50 times. We just got to do what Vietnam's doing. Well, as you now know, Vietnam now has a major outbreak around the city of Da Nang. Uh, 22 cases were detected there just yesterday. Um, and they had basically kept this virus out, at least from what was detected, virtually from the very beginning of the pandemic. And I think they will do a great job there, and they will beat this down. They will walk a mow it into oblivion for a while. But it points out that even under the very best of conditions, even under the most vigorous programs, this is a constant battle. The battle that we're trying to win until we get an effective vaccine. Um, you know, other ones, Germany, which has done really a quite uh, outstanding job in, in stopping its major uh, challenges, including in the meatpacking plant. Yesterday, the head of the Robert Koch Institute 
um, a very well-known scientist, basically expressed his serious concern about the rising cases due to complacency, and he called it negligence about distancing measures. The Germans are taking it, you know, kind of in stride that, you know, we've kind of got this licked. Uh, in Australia, the outbreak in Melbourne has now found its way into nursing homes, which is, you know, we said all along that in a country like Australia that it had pri prided itself on the number of deaths, very few. And again, you know, we knew that if this got into their long-term care facilities, it was going to be a whole different ballgame. And now it's there. Um, Spain uh, has continued to see an ongoing problem in Madrid. They're now making mask use mandatory. China had uh, 68 new cases today, 64 of which were local, for which most of them they did not have a known source for. And I can go down the list here, and all I'm trying to really point out is the world is finally waking up into, to the fact that no country will be without this virus. Many countries, if not most, can do a much better job than they're doing, including us. And uh, I'm in the process of writing an op-ed for a major publication in this country right now on why we have to relook at the idea of shutdowns or what we need to do to try to bring these numbers down, um, knowing the economic pain, uh, the personal horrible, horrible situations this puts people into without adequate support. But otherwise, we're going to be up there. We're going to just have these very, very high numbers, which in and of themselves are going to cause terrible unemployment problems because you know, businesses just won't be able to open. And so I think that that, that standpoint, uh, you know, we're going to see what's happening over the course of the next uh, few weeks. But I, I guarantee you we'll be revisiting this. And I thought it was interesting, just trying to understand how we're reopening. I look at the restaurant business and looking at uh, uh, gross receipts from restaurants in the United States. And in the March-April time period, uh, the restaurant business was running almost 45% below uh, the normal number that they would have expected for that time of year per the previous year. And, uh, you know, they took a, just a heck of a hit. But by last week, it was up to minus 8%. It almost had recovered back to normal. And when you look at that and realize that, you know, there's nothing normal right now. There's just nothing normal. This virus will not allow us just to be normal. Doesn't mean that we have to be crazy. It doesn't mean that we have to be in a fear and panic position, but it says we got to act smarter than we are, and we're not. And so I think that uh, we'll see what happens over the course of the next um, a few weeks, both here in the United States, but also around the world, and we can go from there. Let me just add one last piece on the international picture, Chris, I think that is an adjunct that is important. Uh, we've been concerned in terms of the impact that this virus will have both domestically and internationally per the coming flu season. And just know that, uh, you know, we have been tracking this very carefully of what's happening in the current Southern Hemisphere winter, which, uh, of course, the New Zealand, uh, Australia, South Africa, parts of South America have all been experiencing. And it's actually, uh, we have to be a little bit careful about the issue of uh, uh, interpreting numbers where we have healthcare systems and public health systems are overrun right now, as some of them are in the Southern Hemisphere. But it's quite remarkable that um, we're seeing the, some of the lowest levels of flu we've ever seen in the Southern Hemisphere, in at least modern times. And, uh, you know, New Zealand, which was not heavily impacted by uh, COVID-19 in terms of how they handled it, had a very, very low flu season. 
and that has remained same. True in Australia, uh, flu deaths have dropped substantially in Australia this year. Um, in January through uh, June of 2019, they had 132,000 flu cases, 430 deaths. From January to June of 2020, again, going into their early, their winter, they had only 21,000 flu cases, again, compared to 132,000, and 36 deaths compared to 430. So uh, in a comparable time period, uh, you know, much less. This very well could have a, uh, uh, be a result of people taking more extreme measures to limit transmission of COVID and oh, conversely does the same for flu. Um, this could be just a, a good situation where the interaction between the two viruses, the flu gets beat out. Uh, we don't know. But the bottom line is we're following this very carefully. And as you've heard predictions that if we have flu in the fall and this in the fall, oh my, I think it's way too early to say that. And, and I don't know, I just have a sense I'm optimistic that we're not going to see uh, a major flu year this year. And that would sure help us out a lot. We spent the last two episodes focusing on schools, as you noted earlier, Mike, and last week, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention came out with revised guidelines for school reopenings. What did you make of these new guidelines? Well, I have had a chance to review them in some detail, and um, I was struck by the very pro, we got to get school open again mantra. And, you know, Again, I don't know anyone that could not be for opening schools for all the appropriate reasons, not just for educational instruction, but for, you know, social and emotional skill development, a safe environment for learning, you know, nutritional needs, facilitate physical activity, even just something as simple and yet as critical as Internet connectivity. You know, schools are just so important. And, you know, we, we, we all know that. We could spend a lot of time. But I keep coming back to the fact that this is not any other year. No one argued uh, after Katrina hit Louisiana that they would expect school to be the exact same as it were before that hurricane hit. And, and it wasn't that we had any less uh, emphasis on the very things I just noted that are so important. So I come back to the fact as I discuss this is that, you know, it's time that we just understand we're going to have a COVID year. Let's just accept that and not make it an urgency and a crisis in of itself and just say, you know what, we can't leave anybody behind. We got to make sure that we, a, a year from now, have kids with the opportunity to catch up where they may not have had the opportunity to to learn or they have not had the chance at educational instruction that helped them in the way that they needed to be helped, but that we're going to make a commitment as a country, as a world, to catch up. That's our commitment to kids. You're more important than bars and restaurants. You're more important than any other thing in our lives. We're going to catch up. So if you go into it with that mindset, then you kind of take the pressure off of, oh my God, am I going to make the September 1st school opening date or not? You know, will there be 32 desks in that classroom? Now, if there can be and you can have classes, then we should go for it. So when I look at the CDC recommendations, I'm struck by several things. It is very, very pro-reopening with only very limited discussion, I think, on the downsides. And I was struck by the absence, relative absence, of discussion about 
What do we do to protect our teachers, our staff members, administration, school lunch program specialists, um, bus drivers, coaches, librarians? I can go down the list. All the people who make our schools function as they do and are there for our kids. And uh, today uh, we're already hearing about the possibility of a strike by one of the teachers unions all over the issue that they want to go teach, but they want to do it as safely as possible. And as I record this podcast today, we are still a long ways from passing the HEROES Act in, in the Congress. And that contains incredibly important money for the schools to help enact some of the things they need to do to provide this higher level of safety. So when I, when I look at this, I, I say to myself again, you know, I've been through this for the last two weeks. You've already heard enough about me, about this from me, but but let me just remind everyone of a couple few things here. Um, in terms of cases and kids, don't let anybody tell you they're not going to happen. They are going to happen. Where there have been studies done prior to this that suggested only a few kids get infected or transmit to others, um, they were done largely in areas that had very limited activity in the community. So I don't dispute the data. I just don't think they're relevant to a place like the United States right now. Um, if you look at what we have so far, uh, these are data from the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Children's Hospital Association, which have been running a children's COVID uh, site. Uh, really, very, very well done. And as of this week, uh, 288,287 kids have been reported to be positive. That's 8.4% of all cases in the U.S., now, um, the data come from 49 states, New York City, the District of Columbia, and they do vary in what each of those areas calls a child. Some are 0 to 14, 0 to 17, 0 to 18, 0 to 19, 0 to 20. So but it gives you a sense, okay, of where we're at with case numbers. And so um, from that perspective, it also is important to understand it's one of the fastest growing categories uh, 88,103 cases alone were reported just between July 9th and, and last week. And so as we've seen in Florida, Texas, and Arizona, kids are making up a big part of the issue. Now, as we've said, though, fortunately, they don't get that sick relative to their sheer numbers of cases. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a tragedy anytime you have to even talk about this, but to date, 76 kids uh, have died related to COVID illness. And uh, that is surely a hard number. I just can't imagine any one of those children. And if were one of mine, I, I don't know how I would handle it. But when you look at other comparable public health challenges, in, uh, in 2009, when H1N1 hit the pandemic, uh, from April 15th of 2009 through October 20, 22nd of 2011, there were 358 pediatric cases. And we didn't close down schools. We didn't, uh, you know, at that point take in special initiatives. Now, you know, it doesn't mean maybe we shouldn't have or couldn't have, but I think the bottom line is we're all trying to figure out how to use this data, how to use it in a way that doesn't minimize the cases but gives a sense of relative perspective is what I tried to do last week. I think that um, uh, our state here in Minnesota has done a remarkable job of trying to put together a reasonable and thoughtful plan or approach for how to deal with this. 
And uh, my hat is off to the Minnesota Education uh, Department, uh, the Minnesota State Health Department, uh, and teachers uh, and, admin- and, and administrators who have worked hard on this. If one looks at the Minnesota plan, uh, which is being announced this afternoon by our governor, uh, the goals are fivefold. First is to prioritize the safety of students and staff. Second is to prioritize in-person learning, especially for young learners. Number three, incorporate potential infectiousness among different ages. Four, support planning while permitting flexibility for districts. And five, take into account disease prevalence at a local level. And those are at the heart of what really needs to be done. One, prioritize the safety of students and staff. Notice that's one, that's the very first one, and it's both students and staff. Equal. Yes. Number two, prioritize in-person learning. So we all know that we want that, especially for young learners. And we do have to incorporate that infectiousness among different ages. You know, the fact is that looks like the kids uh, who are 10 and older are going to be much more infectious based on what data we've seen, what I presented to you last week. And support planning while permitting flexibility for districts. Absolutely. I can't emphasize that enough. Uh, This past week, since I did my last podcast, only reinforces we have got to give the school districts their ability, support them in coming together. They will do this as well as anybody. I'm convinced of that. We just have to help support them. And you got to know what's going on in your community. If your house is burning down, it's not a time to plan your vacation. On the other hand, you know, if it's just a high wind that day, you can plan your vacation because after it blows over, it's all done. And that could change quickly between uh, just a good windstorm and your house burning down. So you got to be prepared for that. This plan by the Minnesota Department of Health and Department of Education really accentuate that. And we'll make that plan available on our website for you to see. Um, In terms of decision-making workflow, they uh, consult recommended learning models as indicated by county case data so that when you're looking at whether it's in uh, present at school, whether it's a hybrid, whether it's distance learning, you know, you have to basically consult that learning model. Consult with health officials to examine local epidemiology for isolated outbreaks or community-wide transmission. We're very fortunate here in Minnesota, and I feel badly for some states that can't uh, understand this. Um, We have invested in state and local public health here in ways that few states have done. And I'm very, very proud of the local public health agencies and the state health department here. And I think we will be providing some really outstanding support to these schools Every school district deserves that support. I don't care where you're at. You've got to have a partnership between local public health, the medical community, and you. Um, You've got to evaluate ability to implement required and recommended mitigation best practices. You know, don't think you're going to take an old, old building with radiator heat and suddenly fix the HVAC system because it's not going to happen. And, And so that in part, whether it's that or whether it's space, however, you have to figure that out. You've got to determine educational delivery model. If there's disagreement, then I think that you have to uh, work through that and potentially with the Department of Education. And, and you just have to continue to have that consultation with public health as you go through this. So parents, this is your opportunity to help support that. Now, as I said already, as the patterns of viral transmission change in your community, the learning model is going to have to change. 
you have to maybe transition from in-person learning to for all students to a hybrid model for some in-person, some distance learning, or potentially all to distance learning. Now, I understand the disruption that would occur if suddenly there's a big outbreak in your community. Uh, the case numbers grow rapidly. You may have to switch sooner than you think. But we got to be prepared for that. That's part of the flexibility. You know, don't let it upset us in a way that it might otherwise, if you had a plan and said, oh, this is my plan, I can't get away from my plan. We may have to do that. And I think that's going to be a very, very important point. The other thing is that public health has to be involved to help you decide if I have X number of cases, what does that mean? If all those cases are in long-term care facilities, they're not community-acquired infections, then that's a very different picture than if they're all in the community and you don't know where they're coming from. And so even a certain number of cases doesn't necessarily dictate exactly what you'll do. Now, um, the uh, report from the Minnesota Department of Health and Department of Education lay out uh, health requirements and best practices, social distancing of six feet or more, as much space as possible for all in-person uh, required in a hybrid model, a masking policy, yes, use it, older kids particularly, uh, PPE for direct support student services, you've got to have it. We have got to protect our teachers, our staff, anyone having contact with kids. And that's where support's going to come in. And I realize it's going to be tough to find some of that PPE, but it's important to have it. Do not start your schools without it. Build routine hygiene education and practices. You know, uh, help students understand what they can do to be a good citizens themselves to help um, minimize transmission. That means a lot with junior high and high school. You know, help these students understand their parties may be their parties, may be their parties. And if they don't care about themselves getting infected, which some of them will claim that's the case, just remind them of what happens when they bring the virus home to mom and dad or grandpa or grandma or to their school teachers. You know, nobody wants to be responsible for one of our loved ones dying because of something you did. Now, that's a hard language. I know that. I'm not trying to blame kids, but they have to understand the seriousness. Just like we tell them, don't drive 100 miles an hour on a 55-mile-an-hour road, that's irresponsible. It's also here we have to give them that sense. Where we can, we need to help our schools with ventilation system improvements. These are have to be tweaks. God knows we don't have time to go in and redo HVAC systems nor the money. But can you improve air circulation in a way that you hadn't thought about before? Cleaning, uh, you know, I'm going to talk about that more later with uh, Chris on just what we need to know about cleaning, what we can and should do. Each school should consider having a COVID-19 program coordinator uh, with the ability to help coordinate everything going on in such a way as to make it seamless. And, you know, limit non-essential visitors, volunteers, external groups. You know, don't, don't let them in. I mean, protect yourself while you're there. Um, discontinue large gatherings. You know, activities don't allow for social distancing. You just got to stop those. And daily health monitoring adherence to exclusion policies will surely help. Now, last week I gave you a number and talked about what you could consider when you might open your schools. The department has uh, really taken this uh, a step further, and I really congratulate them. And I had a chance to work with them on this. And I think that they have come up with a very thoughtful and reasonable approach. Last week I said that if you had basically uh, looking at five cases uh, here uh, per, per 100,000 new cases per day that you could basically uh, reopen if you had that or less. Well, that's per 100,000. The 
departments actually did this number of cases per 10,000 for 14 days. So two things they did. One is for many of the smaller counties in the country, not just Minnesota, 10,000 is a much more reasonable number to look at uh, because they don't have hundreds of thousands of people. And also 14 days allows you to smooth things out. Uh, You might very well have an area where you have six or seven cases on a day or two days and then nothing for the rest of the two weeks. And if you did it for just those two days, you'd have astronomically high numbers. If you do it for the 14 days, it gives you a much better average kind of thing. So their numbers are 10,000 cases per 14 days. And they say if it's between zero and nine, which actually equates to the five I gave you last week. Okay, so the five per 100,000 per day. And if it's zero to nine cases in 14 days per 10,000 population, in-person learning for all students should be what really is considered. If it's 10 to 19 cases per 10,000 for 14 days, in-person learning for all elementary students, but hybrid learning model for secondary students, meaning, you know, basically try to get them out a little bit so they're not as much in the school, but keep those younger kids in if you can. If it's 20 to 29 cases per 10,000 per day, then go with a hybrid learning model for all students. If it's 30 to 49 cases per 10,000 for 14 days, then use hybrid learning models for elementary students and distance learning for secondary students. And if it's over 50 cases per 10,000 for 14 days, distance learning for all students. Now, these are not hard, firm numbers. They should be guidelines. They should basically be general sense of where to go. I don't want anybody coming in here and say, oh, my number's at 29.9764. I'm going to do this, okay? It's just a way to think about it. So we're going to go from in-person to hybrid learning with uh, the online capability being something we have to look at very, very carefully. Um, And I think the next thing we have to do is clearly have in place a way to assess cases in school after the opening. This is where schools cannot be left on their own. They need the help of local and state health departments. They've got to have people who have expertise in doing follow-up on potential outbreaks or increased number of cases. They also have to understand it's going to be a challenge because in many situations, frankly, uh, you know, we may not get quick testing in place. But so one of the things that has to be done in conjunction with the school district the leadership of the schools and the public health agencies is understanding how many cases are there in in my school? Are they close together in time or do they spread out over several weeks? Are new cases traceable to the school community? Are they likely a result of what happened at home or some other location? Where are the cases occurring? Do they have a common theme? If it's all in the sporting area, you got to know that and you got to think what I'm going to do about it. How many close contacts does each case have? You know, if you get into one of these situations where 12 new cases each have 12 new contacts, boy, that begins to get big fast. How are you going to handle that? Are students, parents, and staff forthcoming about close contacts? You know, uh, nobody wants to quote unquote rat on their friend. This is not that. This is helping them to identify a friend who may have been exposed, but if they're infected, they have to know that. And you want to follow up with them. Is there any other significant transmission of surrounding communities that will likely impact families and staff? We've seen some of the congregate work areas where family breadwinners bring home the virus, the kids may pick it up, and then they take it to school. Well, then how do we handle that kind of situation so that doesn't happen? And are you able to maintain your current learning model based on staffing? I worry a lot that if we see some teachers 
who can't teach in the classroom are willing to do the hybrid, anxious to be with students as much as they can be, but they can't be in the classroom because of their risk issues. Um, are we going to have enough of those faculty, those staff that can actually be in the work area? We don't want, if they get sick or they're afraid to come to work, then we've got a heck of a challenge there. So let me just uh, kind of conclude here on this issue and just say, remember today some numbers. And this helps give perspective to why I'm concerned about what might happen in the fall with the epidemiology of this disease. If one looks at K through 12 in this country, there are 3.7 million teachers, 3.7 million. Thank God they do God's work. There are 50.8 million students, a lot. If you look at higher ed, 19.9 million students in this country, 1.5 million faculty members. Again, a lot of people. So this is all going to be happening in the next several weeks. And I think if I could just conclude this, just let me say one last time, this has to be local. This is all about local. Let's support that. Please do not dictate top down. Two, consider our COVID year. Be flexible. Be creative. Be kind. If people are afraid to go to school, uh, if people are challenged by the situation, uh, if they're afraid to work because they think that they may be at increased risk, try to understand as much as you can and chalk that up all to your COVID year. We'll get through this if we do that. We'll get through it as well as we possibly can. And next year, we'll come out stronger for it, and we're going to make it up. Expect change. Expect it. Don't worry about whether it's going to happen or not. Dump all those worries. It's going to happen. Just know that in the process, what you want, though, is a school district, a health department, a community that's prepared to adapt to the change without being a crisis. You know, uh, I, I've always said all along, you know, uh, that for many kids, you can not make this a, an adventure because it's hardly that, but help them understand that this change may be good. It, you know, it may be fun. It's like a snow day. They love snow days. Okay, that's a change. Support the teachers. Parents, please support them. This is tough for them. It's really tough. Teachers, support your parents. This is tough. This is really tough for them. And I think if we all do that, and we make administrators, civic leaders all come together on that. We're going to see us getting through this. No, it's going to be rocky. It's going to be rocky. I think it's going to be harder than most people think. But I know we can get through this. I know we can. We came out the other end even better for it. We've got to do whatever we can to catch the disadvantaged, those who need to have school in the way that it has been, not the way that it may be particularly in the grade school side, whether it's special needs children, from a mental health standpoint, from a social emotional needs standpoint, even from an abuse standpoint, um, food supply, all these things. Be creative. If we can't provide in-class education, make it a priority to figure out how am I going to catch these other students? You know, I mentioned it last week, and, and I thought it was just so clever when I heard from one of the special ed teachers that I had talked to about what they did in northwestern Minnesota, an area that's quite rural, where uh, internet connection still is lacking in some places. They took school buses out and literally created hotspots in rural Minnesota. And they had all the distancing in the buses planned so that it wasn't right on top of each other. But it's things like that. Let's be creative. 
um, we've got to be mindful of other child care needs. You know what? I talked about those third of parents last week that said to me, if I don't get my kids in school, I don't have a job. And if I don't have a job, I can't, I don't have a roof. I don't have, I don't have money to pay for food. And the only other alternative I have is to give, you know, my parents the incredibly tough task of having to take care of my kids. And they're both at risk for having a serious health outcome. So we've got to be creative in how we do that. We've got to learn to navigate the stress. Everybody needs to take a stress reduction pill every day. It's just a good breath and a smile. That's what it is. And just help people know that if it gets tough there. Finally, please, our leadership in Washington and the state where possible, provide the needed support that these schools need. I haven't seen one school asking for anything that was anything beyond just the basics of how can we provide a better educational experience at this time with the conditions we've been handed. And so if if schools don't know for another month, if that's what's going to take Washington to come to some conclusion about what's going to be in the HEROES Act, I don't know how you can start school before you know what your support is. I just don't know how you can do it. I don't know how you're going to pay for it. So I think that that's, that's just another place. So I'd leave it by saying we still got a ways to go. Uh, I'm, I'm more convinced now than ever that it's going to be a challenge, but I'm also more convinced now than ever we can, we can handle this. We can do this. We can do this. And it may be one of our most defining moments in this entire pandemic. One day, 20 or 30 or 40 years from now, when our kids and grandkids are reading about 2020, how we handle schools in the next several months, how we handle our kids, how we handle our teachers, how we handle our parents will all be a defining moment of how well we handle this pandemic. Now it's us, up to us to do that. With the country having so much difficulty controlling the spread of the coronavirus, everyone's eyes are on the work that's going into vaccines. And we have an email this week about vaccines from one of our listeners, Roger, who writes, It would be interesting to know more about the landscape of vaccine development, which show promise, why, and what to expect and watch for as the vaccine development progresses. So, Mike, let's start with the Moderna vaccine. Uh, Moderna is uh, enrolling volunteers for a big phase three trial starting this week. What should people be watching for? Well, uh, let me just back up for a moment and say that um, I know that a lot of this is very confusing to people. You hear one hand, it takes 10 years or more to develop a vaccine, and now you're hearing it's been developed in months, and you're sitting there, wait a minute now. You know, that's like saying, you know, I'm building a new house, and in normal times it takes six months to get it done, but you're telling me you can get it done in a week and a half. You know, what's going on here? And it has raised questions about how good can a vaccine like that be as if somehow time is the measure. And in part it is, it is a measure because we have to have certain things happen before we can feel comfortable that it's either effective or safe. But I, I will have to say right now, I don't think that there are any shortcuts that I see that are in fact threatening either our way to measure the vaccine's effectiveness or um, making sure that it's safe. There's still going to be unanswered questions that if we had 10 years, we would have answered them before we put this vaccine out there. But I don't think that they are the showstoppers, and I'll explain why uh, in a moment, uh, against this pandemic. If we can uh, knock, you know, this pandemic in the, in the, in the head, uh, you know, a, a good left jab, then that's what we need to do. Um, so, so let me just say that, and I'll come back to that. The Moderna vaccine is actually an interesting one. It actually takes a part of, of the 
that encodes for the protein spike. The If you can imagine the coronavirus got its name because it looks kind of like a crown around it with all these little spikes that come out. And they're very important in the virus entering into a cell. And if we can make antibodies specifically to that, we call neutralizing antibody, then we can lock up that spike and they can't connect to the cell and get in. The vaccine, which actually takes the genetic material for this protein spike and incorporates it into a type of material, it's called mRNA1273, the particular material, where then it takes this genetic material, gets it to the immune cell, it gets absorbed into the immune cell, and your own immune cells start producing the antibody and, and stimulates, hopefully, the T cells and other part of your immune system by actually being exposed to that protein without ever seeing the live virus. It doesn't even see, you know, uh, we're just injecting parts of it in. It's really project, uh, putting in just a part of the, the genetic material. And it's actually a modern vaccine that has every reason to work very well with uh, limited side effects um, uh, and initially. And so I think at this point, uh, this vaccine trial, which is now uh, uh, part of a process we go through phase one, phase two, and phase three trials. Phase one is the most basic. Do you get an antibody at all if you put it into animals, uh, maybe some humans? Um, is it safe relative to the animals? And you move phase two trials. You put it in humans, a limited number. In this case, it was 45 individuals that got it. The other vaccines in phase two saw the same thing where you look for acute um, the kinds of reactions if you give the vaccine. Um, and do you make antibody? So now what's happening is 30,000 people around the United States will get the, uh, be part of this phase three trial for this mRNA vaccine by Moderna. Half will get a placebo, something that is indistinguishable from the vaccine itself. You don't know what you got. And half will get the vaccine. And then over the course of the upcoming months, these people will be monitored very closely to see who comes down with uh, uh, the COVID-19 and who doesn't. And we'll look to see at some point where it's clear, oh my, this vaccine is really highly protective. It also is still you know, showing all the safety features we're asking for. It. If that be the case, we could very well have definitive information by mid-fall saying you know, that in fact, this vaccine is X percent effective. Now we're gonna have some challenges because in looking at a vaccine for a population like ours, we'd wanna have data on age, we'd wanna have data on underlying risk factors, we wanna have it on, on other potential genetic uh, related issues. We're not gonna likely have all that much information on all those different things. So does it work well in older people, for example, uh, when the vast majority of the people that are being enrolled are not older people? Um, and we'll have to wait and see what we get for that kind of information. Uh, will it last for a long time? We're not going to know. I don't want to wait five years to find out how long this vaccine lasts uh, to then know whether or not to use it. So that's one of those questions that will have to be answered at a later date. Uh, but we'll want to look at that. So I think the overall technology, the overall approach we're taking is the right thing. Remember, it takes two doses. So even if you have 200 million doses of vaccine, that's only 100 million people getting vaccinated. And so we're not going to have vaccine for everybody initially, and nor should we if you've already had the disease and recovered. Uh, you hopefully will be protected from that. So uh, there's still a lot of things to work out about how it will be manufactured in sufficient quantities and distributed. Uh, remember, as I've said time and time again, a vaccine is just that. It's nothing until it's a vaccination. It's in your arm. 
and uh, we'll, we'll be following that. So, so we're in phase three trials right now. We should know in months ahead whether this vaccine is actually protecting us from this terrible, terrible disease. Mike, I mentioned the nation's continuing problems with testing in the intro, and we received another email this week uh, about testing issues. Uh, this one from a nurse named Mark, who said that his health system, which he noted is the third largest in the U.S., is discussing an algorithm to limit COVID-19 testing because of a shortage of reagents. And he wanted to know how to approach testing with these type of shortages. Uh, Mike, b- between uh, the reagents and uh, the testing delays, this just continues to be a problem. Yeah, this is a challenge. Um, let me say at the outset, this is something that uh, I've been talking about on these podcasts from day one. Uh, we've published several pieces on it. In fact, we have one in our viewpoints on, on COVID testing and the challenges thereof. Uh, I wrote a op-ed piece in the New York Times with Mark Olshaker uh, back last April in which we talked about all the challenges of testing, supply chain issues, et cetera. So first of all, why are we in this position and many other countries are not? Well, first, uh, it is the sheer number of cases right now. We are doing more testing than we've ever done, but we are outstripping that testing capacity with the need for more and more testing because of all the cases. But the other thing that's happened is we set up a system in this country where we're counting on really uh, a few companies, Cephalid, Hologic, Roche, and Abbott, to provide all the testing uh, machines, reagents, all the types of plastic vials, et cetera, all that have to be part of this. And they're all proprietary to each one of these. And so if you have one thing missing from one of these companies, you're done. You can't, you're cooked. You can't do the testing. So whether it's a reagent, a chemical you need, whether it's part of the, the way the sample has to be presented in the machine, if the machine breaks down, and so what's happened is, is that other areas of the world actually have less uh, automated testing. I mean, these are highly automated where, you know, you just literally put it in, boom, boom, comes out and gives you an answer. And that's made us really uh, captured by these companies. And so we have a number of hospitals right now that have bought three or four different kinds of machines just so that they can have hopefully something from one of the companies will complete the entire needs of what they have, whether it be reagents, whatever. So one of the problems we had is, is that no one really put together a national plan, something we called for in April, where we sit down and say, what are our needs? Who can supply them? If I'm one of these four companies, am I going to spend millions and millions and millions of dollars to increase capacity to make part of my machine or part of my the materials I need to run the test, only to have it all go away in a year, a year and a half from now when the pandemic's over. And I'm going to be sitting there holding all this manufacturing capacity and, uh, you know, it's going to be dark. And so what happened was there was no grand plan. And now we're caught in that very uh, kind of situation where, where we don't have it. So it's the painful irony is right now, as, as the infection rates literally are increasing nationwide, we have a whole lot of labs out there that aren't in running anywhere near capacity because of the supply chain challenges, meaning that um, they don't have enough of that chemical. They don't have enough of those particular uh, plastic uh, tubes. They don't have enough of something for that part of the machine. And so it's as if somehow uh, all it takes is that one thing to be absent. If the supply chains can't supply it, so be it. So 
we have to look at this system uh, and ask ourselves one day, is this the position of vulnerability we want to be in for future testing situations? And I, I fear that if that's the case there, that, that that's going to be a challenge. And I don't think there is one single sim- simple solution at this point. It's just not. Um, uh, we got to keep working with these companies. That's all that we uh, have access to. We're not like China or Canada or in many other countries that have much less automated testing, and therefore they're not captured by one company. Uh, you know, it's like, rather, what if you only could buy gasoline from one type of gas station in the whole country and they were limited? Or you could buy gas at any gas station. Well, many of the countries run the tests as if they can buy gas at any gas station. We have to find that particular brand of gas before we can buy it when we have these lab tests. So so it's a challenge. I don't think it's going to get better soon. Um, and as you know, we've said over and over again, a test that comes back eight to 10 days, days later is a wasted test, absolutely a wasted test. And, uh, and we've, we've got to address that. There's been a new group formed at the White House to advise the administration on testing. I've been asked to serve on that. We'll wait and see uh, what comes of it. Uh, I fear that any solution now is going to be so late in the process that even if companies are able to increase, enhance their capabilities to provide a lot of these reagents and and aspects of the test, um, by the time we get them, hopefully the pandemic will be long over. Mike, finally, there's an interesting article out this week in The Atlantic that suggests the emphasis on decontaminating and sanitizing surfaces as a way to reduce the spread of the coronavirus is misguided. So do we really need to be obsessively cleaning our counters and doorknobs at home? Or is surface transmission something we really don't need to worry about that much? Well, as you know, Chris, I've been actually saying this on this podcast from almost day one. I continue to say it at work all the time. You know, as somebody who deals with a lot of other infectious diseases that involve hands, such as foodborne disease, I think hand washing is next to godliness. But when it comes to COVID-19, it's not critical at all. And I worry that we have added an additional level of almost paranoia in the public's mind about they have to be afraid of everything they touch. And that's simply not the case. And we will bear that out with time. The work we're doing right now on infectious dose issues, et cetera, will, I think, help share that very piece of information. So, uh, you know, I understand how people got here. They wanted to tell the public that these are the things you can do. Um, And unfortunately, in doing that, we didn't really realize that, yes, we were giving something to do but that it also created a real challenge in terms of emotionally how they felt about their environment. And uh, we shouldn't have given that advice uh, to them if it wasn't really clear that we that this virus was being transmitted in that kind of contact way. I mean, I, I've heard of horror stories from friends and colleagues, you know, of leaving groceries out on the front porch for days so that they could, quote, unquote, naturally decontaminate uh, it's crazy. So I'm happy to report to you the good news is today, wash your hands anyway for the foodborne disease and, and fecal oral transmitted diseases, et cetera, also upper respiratory, common cold viruses, et cetera. They are a challenge, but not this one. So you can rest assured that uh, you know, you're not going to put yourself in harm's way if you don't wash your hands every 10 minutes uh, because of COVID-19. And this article did a wonderful job of laying out exactly the science behind this uh, and, and why we can feel so confident about that. 
So, Mike, uh, what are your uh, parting words of wisdom for us this week? Oh, my. <laughs> um, thank you. Thank you very much. I, uh, I It was an, an amazing response to last week's podcast. Um, I appreciate you all very, very much. Um, uh, we really have become kind of a thing. Uh, it, it means a great deal to all of us. Uh, many of the SIDRAP staff have been able to read the many emails you send us. I, as I said, I've tried to get back to as many as you as I, as I can, uh, but it's become impossible on the sure numbers, but we read them. We, we appreciate them. Please, not just the, the good news, uh, but also if you have challenges or questions, please don't hesitate to let us know about that. But I, I just can't thank you enough uh, for what you do and how you do it. And I had several emails this week uh, that people who felt tentative, they just felt uh, afraid of where they're at. And they felt like they lacked the power to do what they needed to do. And, and I think they found some comfort in these podcasts as, as a way to come together. But, you know, when I, when I hear about what so many of you are doing out there right now, you know, you're amazing. You really are. And I don't think you fully realize who and what you are, not only to yourself, but to others. And so this week I, I picked a song. Um, and I have to again thank Evan and Lisa for, for this song. Uh, it was written by Mariah Carey and Walter Afinisoff, um, and uh, written in 1999. Uh, and I think it, it speaks to you. It speaks to each one of you. And the song is Hero. There's a hero if you look inside your heart. You don't have to be afraid of what you are. There's an answer if you reach into your soul and the sorrow that you know will melt away. And then a hero comes along with the strength to carry on. And you cast your fears aside and you know you can survive. So when you feel like hope is gone, look inside you and be strong and you'll finally see the truth, that a hero lies in you. It's a long road when you face the world alone. No one reaches out a hand for you to hold. You can find love if you search within yourself, and the emptiness you felt will disappear. And then a hero comes along with the strength to carry on, and you cast your fears aside, and you know you can survive. So when you feel like hope is gone, look inside you and be strong. And you'll finally see the truth that a hero lies in you. Lord knows dreams are hard to follow, but don't let anyone tear them away. Hold on. There will be tomorrow. In time, you'll find the way. And then a hero comes along and the strength to carry on. And you cast your fears aside and you know you can survive. So when you feel like hope is gone, Look inside you and be strong, and you'll finally see the truth. That's a hero lies in you. That a hero lies in you. That a hero lies in you. Thank you all very much to my heroes out there. Um, we're just going to keep taking this one week at a time. Um, we will um, keep uh, together as a group, understanding how important this is and getting the information out and Please, our pandemic of kindness, please keep it going. Uh, hopefully within the next week or two, I'll have some news for you also and some other very good things happening. 
in spite of this pandemic uh, that uh, we've alluded to in the past and we're working on right now. But in the meantime, be safe, be well, and be kind. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Ostrom Update. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review. And be sure to keep up with the latest COVID-19 news by visiting our website, sidrap.umn.edu. The Ostrom Update is produced by Maya Peters, Corey Anderson, and Angela Ulrich.